Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. God's word reads, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has called to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge? This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. Time to pray. Our Father, as we approach uh, Scripture this morning, we want not only to understand it, but we want to understand it in a way that it begins to resonate in us. And resonating in our heart, our soul, our mind, day after day, in contemplation, in meditation of it, that that resonation lead to a transformation, not only in, in, in the way that we see you, Father, and what it is that you beckon us to, to, to live and how to live in our lives, but especially, Father, in how this text helps us to understand how we interact with each other. Help us, Father, this morning to see the holiness that is in all of these relationships in our church family, in our, our family of faith. We want to be a community, Father, in the truest of senses. We want to be not just one in the way that we think, but we want to be one in heart, one with each other as, as we are one with you. And where we need to change our attitudes and our practices our perspectives. Give us the power to do it, Father. And where we need to, to change, literally change the, the nature or the status of a relationship, we ask for you to give us the strength and the humility and the grace to do that. But it begins, Father, with you giving us truly, truly, truly eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is what we ask as we approach this text this morning. And this is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are, as we have been throughout uh, January and uh, beginning weeks of February, we have been introducing our theme, Amplify. It's up there on the screen. It's all over the building. It's up here on the stage. 
And the reason for that is we want to think about what it means to live a loud, big faith. When you amplify a voice, it's to make that voice heard over all of the other voices. When you amplify your faith, it's to make it hard to ignore. When you amplify your faith, it is to make it visible in such a way that people can't help but see it. And to help us to understand how to amplify our faith, what we're doing is going and and diving deeply into the Word of God as it's found in James and looking at all of the ways that James teaches us about how to live out this big faith. One of the first lessons was how to approach suffering in this life in a realistic way and to approach that suffering in a way knowing that by God's power He can turn that evil against itself in order for you to come out a better, a better version of yourself and makes your faith alive. Another lesson dealt with the Word of God, that the Word of God is not just something that we know. It's not just something that, that uh, becomes a set of facts uh, it becomes a, a set of data that we were able to regurgitate and pare it back. But, but the Word becomes something that we have a relationship with, that the Word has a relationship with us, that that Word becomes planted in our hearts. And being planted in our hearts, that Word becomes alive. It becomes rooted. It begins to grow and it begins to blossom. And we begin to flourish in ways that that Word mandates. Another lesson dealt with, you know, how do you deal with people? And it's something that, that James is going to return, return to today, this morning, in the text that Adrian just read for us. But one of the first lessons about dealing with other people, especially people in the community, is that we live by the royal law. We don't take our cues from our culture. We take our cues from God's Word. We live according to the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. James also reminds his readers that faith is more than just believing the right things about God. That faith also involves an appropriate lifestyle and appropriate actions that reflects that we really are intimate with God and that God is intimate with us. Faith even affects, as we saw last Sunday morning, faith affects the way that we use our words because it is a word that gave us newness of life, that brought a new birth. It is the word of God that becomes planted in our heart. And as it begins to grow and is rooted and we begin to change, we become more and more like the Christ. And how we use our words, now knowing that the word is so important and so powerful, is an indication of whom we belong to. And we belong to God. We want our faith to reflect that relationship. Now this morning, James helps us to see what an amplified faith looks like within the relationships in the church, in, in the body of Christ, in the community of faith. And I want to begin with a question, and this is where we're going to kind of be headed throughout the message this morning. The question is this, is the difference the gospel makes in your life a difference that your brothers and sisters can experience? Think about that. Is the difference that the gospel makes in your life a difference that is detectable, that is palpable? that it's something that's tangible, that it's a difference your brothers and sisters in Christ can experience. A couple of stories. First one, a funny story. It's kind of an old story. It's a story about a young preacher who was experiencing a conflict in his church. On Sunday mornings, half of the congregation would clap during the singing and the other half would not. And both sides were insisting, insisting that theirs was the true tradition, that theirs was the right way to do it. The young preacher had not a clue as to how to solve this problem, and everything that he did kind of fell to the ground in failure. He finally sought out the old preacher, the guy that had planted the church. He went up to him and asked him, you know, what, what is the tradition of our church? Or do we clap during the singing? The old preacher said, no. 
Oh, said the young preacher, then the tradition was not to clap during the singing. The old preacher said, no. Well, the young preacher said, what we have is complete pandemonium. What we have is anarchy. Half the church is, is clapping and shouting, and half of the church is not clapping and screaming. What we have is everyone screaming and shouting at each other. Ah, said the preacher, that's our tradition. True story, uh, not too long after I had gone into ministry, so we're, t- <laughs> we're talking about um, uh, like 35 years ago. Uh, I had not been in ministry very long when Ellen and I, on a Wednesday night, had gone to the church that we were working with. We were walking across the parking lot to our Bible classes when we, she and I witnessed this young couple, not much older than we were, having this horrific argument. I mean, they were calling each other every name under the sun. Well, Ellen headed on into the church, and one of the deacons and I got them and, and made them go to their neutral corners and take a standing eight count. And we thought that, that it was done, that they had cooled off, that, you know, after church everything would be cooled, and that was not the case. After church, her mom and dad, his in-laws, got involved, and somehow, as a, a young preacher, I got pulled right into the middle of it. And so, uh, you know... Everybody is leaving, and we're kind of standing out in the parking lot, and we're talking about things, and and things are somewhat calm, but nothing is being resolved between the son-in-law and the father-in-law. And finally, the father-in-law had had enough of this, told his daughter and his wife to grab the grandbaby and to get in the car, and she was going to go home with him. And that's when I heard it, a click. And I turned, and the young guy, who had been an ex-member of a bike gang, had produced a switchblade. The father-in-law, who had lost a leg and was on crutches, leaned against his car, raised his crutch like a baseball bat, and said, come on. And I'm like this close to both of them. And I, I don't know where this came from, but I turned to the young man and I said, look at me. Please, please, please think about what you're doing. Think, 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 think about what you're doing. Your wife and your baby are in that car. And his countenance changed on his face from anger to less anger. And he closed the knife and got in his car and left. And the father-in-law got in the car and, and they left. And I'm in the parking lot all alone at night by myself. And I fainted. <laughs> Not really. But I got in my truck and drove home fighting back the tears. I ask again, is the difference the gospel makes in your life a difference your brothers and sisters can experience? The text we we looked at last Sunday night that precedes this one deals with what kind of wisdom guides your life. What kind of wisdom makes you, you? a wisdom from heaven or a wisdom of the earth. And as James begins to write about relationships inside of the church and unity inside of the church and the way that you resolve problems inside of the church, he transitions at the end of chapter 3 with this statement. He says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Say that with me. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. 
Understanding what it means to be at peace with God turns you into a peacemaker and a peace lover. And with all of that in mind, James addresses the existence of a fight and quarrels and murder among the people of God. Now, we get to that word murder. I don't think that he means it literally, but it references Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about murdering somebody in your heart, making you liable to God's judgment. I mean, when you think about it, everybody has a face in their mind that they want to punch. And what most Christians don't take into consideration when these things happen is that the gospel is put on trial. What we think about is whether or not I'm right or I'm getting justice or whether or not my cause is just. What we don't realize is that there's more than your reputation or your justice or your life at stake. It is the, the reputation of the gospel. What is at stake is the gospel. And people on the outside do not see the gospel as a power when these kinds of things happen. What they see is that the gospel is just a philosophy, that it's just a way of thinking about the world, and in the end, it doesn't really make any changes in the world because it doesn't really change human beings or their hearts. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is a what? Power. It's a power that changes. And because of that, Jesus has a different goal. In John chapter 13 and verse 34, he says, Here's this new command I'm giving you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Listen to this. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you want. Say it with me. You love one another. And then uh, maybe a couple of hours later as Jesus is praying, praying in John chapter 17 he's praying this to God he says my prayer is not for them alone I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be what maybe all what church one father just as you are in me and I am in you and James sort of picks up on this and hence foreshadows a little bit of what he's going to be talking about in the fourth chapter when he says in chapter 1, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so what James 4 gives us is a root and a source and a product. A root and a source and a product. The first is the root of the problem. The root of the problem. James chapter 4, let me reread verses 1, 2, and 3. James, now after having all of these things said about the Word of God and, and, and suffering and all of these different things and how the, the faith is, is, is amped up where people can see it, that it's not faith just to say that you believe. You have to have faith that somehow translates itself into actions that look like that faith. And so he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. In your Bibles or your smart devices, phone, whatever, where you're reading this text, in verse 1, I want you to mark, or maybe on your outlines, circle the word desire at the beginning of that text. It's the word from which we get the word hedonism. Hedonism is not merely pleasure, but it's, it's, it's self-indulgence. A hedonist believes 
that they have the right to do everything or the right to do anything within their power to experience the most profound pleasure. A hedonist motto is this, if it feels good, do it. That's a hedonist. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, then it gives you the right to do it and the power to do it. The Greek philosophers, most of them, thought that pleasure was the highest good. Now, when you believe that pleasure is the highest good, kind of what is behind that in terms of a worldview? That this life is all there is. That this life is all there is. There is nothing after this life, so for this life to have any meaning, it's got to be me and about me and about my life and about my desire. And that philosophy snuck into the church. And so James says in verse 3, one of the reasons that God is not blessing you is because all you want to do is spend whatever blessing you get on yourself. Whatever you ask for, you want to spend it on yourself. And that, in a nutshell, is the earthly wisdom that James just wrote about in the preceding text. That the earthly wisdom is, it's about me, not about the Christ. And isn't it interesting that in the very next verse, in verse 4, James calls these Christians adulterers after calling them brothers and sisters and sisters and brothers and, and, and brethren several times, he now calls them adulterers. Why does he do that? To get their attention in a, in a, in a really brusque way. So why does he do it? Why, why does he call them ad, adulterers? What, what in the world is this adultery all about? Well, when you think about it in the literal sense of marriage, adultery is not having the center of your marriage right, because you've introduced a third party into an exclusive relationship between you and the spouse to whom you have made vows. In this case, it's an illicit relationship. James calls it a friendship with the world. And friendship with the world quietly kills friendship with God. And that's why we need healing. And there is a source of that healing. In verse 5, James says, Do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? You know that word jealousy in our own culture seen mainly in a negative light. It's about fear and about rage. It's about humiliation. It's about the fear of abandonment and the possibility of being left alone. Apparently, and I didn't really check this down uh, or, or check this out very clearly, but apparently Oprah uh, sort of gave up on God when she read something about God's jealousy and said, well, if, how can God be God if He's jealous of me? She missed the point of what it is that James and others are talking about. I think the best answer comes from a little book, uh, many of you have read it, C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. And he writes, in this again, in the context of jealousy, Lewis writes, when we fall in love with a woman, do we cease to care whether she is clean or dirty, fair or foul? Do we not rather than first begin to care? Does any woman regard it as a sign of love in a man that he neither knows nor cares how she is looking? Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them. But love cannot cease to will their removal. 
And I think that Lewis has captured what it is that the jealousy of God is all about. The jealousy of God wills our flourishing and our blossoming and our abounding. And it's the jealousy of God that prunes the defunct branches and the limbs that are dead and decaying of, on our life. While at the same time, verse 6, He gives us more grace. That is one of absolutely the most beautiful pivot points in all of Scripture. Because not only is God jealous and, 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 and wanting us to flourish and to become the human beings that He always wanted for us to be, and that does involve, from that jealous standpoint, the, the pruning and, and the clipping away and, and, and the, the, the taking away of the things that are detrimental to the faith, to our life, but at the same time He gives us grace. And what He's saying there is that grace invades the space that is filled with quarrels and fights. You know, friends, when we ponder the enormity of God's love and we begin to spiral into it more deeply and more deeply each day, we realize that what it is that God is doing is changing us. He is making us, to kind of use another C.S. Lewis phrase, He's making us many Christs. And as such, because that Word has taken root in our heart, and it begins to, to, to grow and, and we begin to blossom, that He's turning us into beautiful human beings and He's turning us into many Christ. that means that we live a counterintuitive life. We live a counterintuitive life to the ways and the means that things, that, that, that dis, disagreements and arguments are handled in this life. And that becomes the last thing, and that's the product of the transformation. And he begins to make a list of all of the ways that you begin to see this transformation take place in people's lives. And as that transformation, transformation takes a, a, a hold in people's lives and they begin to be changed, what they begin to see is, is the relationships inside of the church begin to change. And the relationships at home begin to change. But primarily, the relationships inside of the church, inside of this body, inside of the community of faith, the family of God, begin to change and to begin to reflect the power of the gospel and the power of God's grace as it fills our hearts and souls and takes the places of that conventional wisdom that says when you have a problem, you've got to fight. And so in this list, he says, you know, you, you submit yourself to God, which is just another way of saying you've got to pick up your cross and follow the Christ every day, or you can't be His disciple. And this is precisely what Christ did in putting Himself on the path that led from heaven to Calvary. It means we die to self. It means that it's no longer, it's counterintuitive, right? It's no longer hedonistic. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about my desires and that being the pinnacle and, and the high point, the zenith, the apogee of all of life. But it becomes about picking up a Christ and dying to, picking up a cross and dying to self, becoming that mini Christ and, and that being reflected in the way that I relate to other people. He says, secondly, it's about resisting the devil. When's the last time you saw a temptation come at you and the big question was whether or not you were going to fall or not, and you did not see it as an opportunity to stand tall for the kingdom. You know, that's part of the problem that's happening in the church of Corinth. The temptation is, let's have a big fight because 
uh, you know, we don't seem to be getting justice, and the only way that I'm going to get justice is if I take justice in my own hands. And Paul, quite frankly, looks at the church and says to them, shame on you, would not it be better to be wronged knowing, knowing that the gospel is at stake? And that in being wrong in a patient, godly way reflects very much the stature and, 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 and the status and the posture of Christ as he stood before his accusers and stood before Pilate and did not open his mouth, but was led silent as a sheep before its shears. Stand tall in the face of a temptation. To come near to God, he says, the growing sense of God in your life. That it's not just, you know, when you first became a, a believer and a, a disciple of Jesus that really, you know, you were still trying to break out of those old habits. And what was happening is, you know, you would, you would begin to think about Christ on Sunday morning, maybe Saturday night as you were getting ready, and maybe Wednesday night or when you opened your Bible. But as, as you begin to grow and mature and as you begin to grow closer to God, there was this sense this growing sense that everywhere you go, every place you are, with every person that you meet, that God is there. You know, in the back of their minds are, are probably the words of Jesus where two or three are gathered. How's it go? There I am also. He says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. You know, this hunger for holiness to grieve and to mourn and to wail, to change your laughter to mourning. That's all language that says, you know what? There's a future that is so bright, that is our joy is so great in that future to come and our anticipation of it is so great that the future is God's future and that the future is not going to have a scent of death or a whiff of wickedness. There's not going to be the decay and the bondage to decay and all of those things that we wrestle with when it comes to the thorns and the thistles. That when we see that and it's so real, that our joy at that future makes our life in the present look like grief. Even though in the present world we find it to be at times a beautiful place. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and do not slander. All James is doing is asking us to follow in the steps of the Christ. It's all he's asking is that for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of, of God's name, for the sake of His glory, for the sake of the fact that the relationship with God is so fantastically, brilliantly, in a stellar way, the most precious gift that you have, that it, it's reflected in the way that you handle everything else in life. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and it's an invitation for you to respond, maybe in, in a way that you've never done so before. It's an opportunity, maybe if you've been struggling with a relationship, and maybe the response this morning is to make that relationship right sometime this week, or at least in the next couple of days, so that the gospel is vivid in your life, that the, the gospel is seen vividly in your life. Or may it may be that, you, you know, your relationship with this church family is such that you can't think of a single moment in your life that somehow disconnects you from the people in this room. And when there are tough times that are coming into your life, you think about the people in this room and the way that they can pray for you.
or you think about the people in this room and how you can go to them and talk about the things that are piling up in your heart and the accumulation of pain and all of these kinds of things. I mean, these people become your companions in suffering in such a way that, that you become so more fully integrated into the fellowship of this group. And, and maybe this morning the way you respond is just by saying, I need you to pray for me or I need you to help me or, or whatever it might be. This, the church, The church is a body. When we sing, we sing with one voice. And when we hurt, we hurt with one body. And when we feel that joy, it is every member of the body feeling that joy as well. But this is an opportunity during this praise of God for you to respond to James chapter 4 in a way that reflects the gospel. I ask you to do that now as we stand and sing.